2: What you're about to hear are two lost episodes combined to create one dark, true story. These two cases that are directly related were two episodes that led to the creation of Black Label. Back then, I didn't really know what people would accept on the main feed. With time, these two came down. I've always regretted taking them down. Featured here, they are expanded and combined. And I promise, this is dark, black stuff. Don't expect light at the end of this tunnel things get bad. There are several ways to get to the Yosemite National Park in Northern California, but the most scenic is a long, winding road through the mountains. As you drive north on Wawona Road, the small shrubs give way to the large pine trees that line the two-car road. The aroma of pine trees fill your car as you slowly drive left and right as the road follows the contours of the mountain. And then, when you turn around the final bend, you enter in a dark tunnel. The tunnel was carved directly through the mountain, through solid granite, and it's the longest tunnel in the California highway system at 4,220 feet. The darkness envelops you when you first enter the tunnel, and at times it seems like it will never end. But when you reach the end and finally exit the tunnel, light and warmth floods into the windshield and you are exposed to the most beautiful scenery in the Yosemite Valley. From this location you can see El Capitan Mountain to your left, a waterfall on your right, and in the rear, the famous Half Dome Mountain. It is a stunning, picturesque landscape, and it immediately becomes obvious why Yosemite National Park has almost four million visitors every year. Unfortunately for four innocent women, there's another darkness in the Yosemite Valley area, and it isn't the tunnel, it's a person. And though he's just a man of flesh and blood, he managed to cast a shadow over the valley. That shadow isn't straight like the tunnel that leads into the valley. It is more like the winding road that leads up to it, with twists and turns and bends, disfigured and ugly. To fully understand what happened in the Yosemite Valley, we need to take a detour. Just two hours west of Yosemite is Merced, California. Merced has a population of roughly 80,000, and because of its proximity to the national park, It is known as the gateway to Yosemite. It was also the gateway for Delbert and Kay Stainer to start their lives. The young couple moved to Merced three months after their first son, Carrie was born. Their small family grew quickly, and over the next seven years, Kay and Delbert had four more children. One more boy, Stephen, and three girls. To those who knew them, they were an average American family. There was always some sibling rivalry, which is understandable, with five young children in the house. You could expect the normal rough housing that comes with such a large group of children. The joy, the excitement, and even the punishment that comes with rough play. Everything appeared to be normal and average. They were outgoing and involved with the Mormon church. There were family trips to New Mexico and camping trips. While the children did get to spend time with their parents on vacations, they spent little time with them in daily life. Delbert was a hard-working man who often worked 18-hour shifts, six days a week, and Kay would often work service-related jobs wherever she should. When he was home, Delbert was the more affectionate of the two parents. He would frequently wrestle and cuddle with his children. Kay, on the other hand, was firm, unemotional, and unaffectionate. As a young girl, Kay had been sent away to a Catholic school where she suffered sexual abuse, which resulted in her keeping her emotions bottled up and hidden, even from her own children. Just like the branches of a tree grow in different directions— twisting and turning, the boys also grew in different directions. Carey was an introvert. He was quiet and artistic while even at a young age Stephen was outgoing and extroverted. He was popular. With popularity came a lot of friends. It was likely Stephen's agreeable personality that led to an event that would haunt him for the rest of his life. On December 4th 1972, the fair-haired, freckled little seven-year-old walked home alone from Charles Wright Elementary School. As he walked down the street, someone known in the community as a naive, gentleman by the name of Irvin Edward Murphy handed a gospel tract to Stephen and struck up a conversation with him. Edward explained they were looking for donations for his church. Stephen, familiar with the charity activities in his own Mormon church, indicated his mother might have some items they could possibly donate. Edward explained they were looking for donations for his church. Edward signaled for someone down the street, and quickly a white Buick pulled up to the curb. Behind the wheel was Kenneth Parnell. The man behind the wheel volunteered to take Stephen home. Stephen declined. He told the man he'd walk home himself. Edward insisted, letting Stephen know that Kenneth, the man at the wheel, is a nice man. He could be trusted. Stephen, being young and impressionable, trusted the two adults. When you're seven, adults are everything to you. Unfortunately for Stephen, the man behind the wheel, Kenneth Parnell, had a dark history, and Stephen was not going home. Kenneth Parnell was born in Amarillo, Texas. At the age of five, his father walked out on the family. It was a traumatic event for Kenneth. While not an excuse for his behavior, this may have been the catalyst for Kenneth's actions for years to come. Shortly after his father left, Kenneth, his mother, two half-sisters, and a half-brother moved to Bakersfield, California. Kenneth never really adjusted to the move, and his life of crime began. He was in and out of juvenile detention centers and mental institutions. As a juvenile, he was arrested and convicted of arson and car theft. Parnell claimed he had been homosexually raped at the age of 13. In March 1951, at the age of 19, Parnell obtained a false deputy sheriff's badge from an Army and Navy surplus store, and abducted an eight-year-old boy by impersonating a police officer. He was arrested and convicted for sodomizing and molesting a child. While in prison, Parnell received treatment from a state hospital, but broke the lock on a window and escaped. He was apprehended the following year in Albuquerque, New Mexico and returned to San Quentin. He received parole in 1956. He would later claim he abducted and raped the boy because he was sexually frustrated at home Kenneth Parnell quickly drove in the opposite direction from Stephen Stainer's home and immediately started to Cathy's Valley, a small little town that was 30 minutes out of town. It was roughly the midpoint between Merced and Yosemite. Through the entirety of the drive, Stephen insisted on being taken home, but his pleas and begging went ignored. Kenneth Parnell quickly began to manipulate Stephen. Parnell chose Stephen after a postman explained how Stephen had recently been spanked by this father. Knowing this... He knew he could easily manipulate the boy by telling him that his parents no longer wanted him. He knew Stephen would be inclined to obey adults. That is exactly what he did. Not only would he tell Stephen that his parents no longer wanted him, he would also explain that his parents could no longer afford to keep him, and so they arranged to give Stephen to Parnell. It was explained that a judge had given Parnell legal custody of Stephen, and so he required Stephen to call him Dad. He also told Stephen that he was no longer Stephen. His new name was Dennis. The very first night in Kathy's Valley, the sexual assault began. This is where Stephen lost his innocence at the hands of a monster. Back at home, Delbert and Kay were getting worried. Their little boy had come home late before, but never this late. The knot in their stomachs grew with every passing hour. They wanted their little boy home. When he did not return, they filed a missing person report. And then they did what any parent would do. They went looking for their little boy. A piece of them went missing and they were going to do everything they could to find it. They created flyers and distributed them around the neighborhood. They would look at pictures of any children that had turned up dead to possibly identify Stephen's little body. They even consulted psychics to see if they could determine the whereabouts of their boy. Years passed. Kay and Delbert spent all of their spare time looking for Stephen. Every tip turned out to be waste of time, largely wasting precious time. None of the tips led them any closer to Stephen. With Stephen missing, the stable, happy, and secure family was starting to crumble. Delbert became more and more obsessed with finding his son, and this caused him to neglect the other four children. Instead of family trips to New Mexico and camping, they now piled into the car to go on long, meandering drives around Merced and the surrounding area, just to look for any sign of Stephen. If they received any type of tip... The parents would get the family in the car and follow that tip as far as it would take them. If you're a parent, you've probably experienced the sheer terror of not knowing where your child is when, randomly, they decide to play hide-and-seek in a store. That terror was embedded in Delbert 24 hours a day, and it started to eat away at him. His cuddles and wrestling were replaced by searches and yelling, fears and anxiety. While the other four children needed care as well, because the understandable obsession with finding Stephen, part of their childhood, essentially went missing too. Lost forever. Never to be found. While they were present and at home, they were neglected. When they needed their parents' love, they were shut out. When they needed to be loved and encouraged, they were forced to walk on eggshells and bottle up their feelings. Kay would later admit that the family members never talked about their feelings during this time because things weren't right in the home. Emotions taboo. Only Delbert voiced his opinion. That opinion was usually accompanied by a harsh tone and a raised voice. According to court testimony, Kay claimed Delbert once had this to say. He said we should be glad that Stephen was gone. Now we only have four children to clothe. All of this had a profound effect on the eldest son, Carrie. Carry was 11 when his younger brother went missing. While Stephen was an extrovert and, according to his mother, had oodles of friends, Carry was more of an introvert. He enjoyed television and artwork. While he did have friends, he was independent and didn't need anyone to entertain him. He was intelligent and an excellent student. He never needed assistance with his assignments from his mother. Carry really needed those loving parents as he was dealing with his own darkness. When Carrie was a young boy, he started to pull out his hair. It was so bad that he would often have bald patches. When his parents took him to the doctor, he was diagnosed with trichotillomania, which is a fancy word for obsessive-compulsive hair-pulling. He was prescribed medication. At the early age of seven, Carrie claims he started to have some impulses. At first, they appeared to be general fantasies of his mother being kidnapped. Over time, these fantasies started to grow, and the impulses became more intense. To make matters worse, just a few months before Stephen went missing, Carrie was molested by his uncle, Jesse Stainer. While I searched for more information on this case, there is little to be found, but it does appear Jesse was convicted of child molestation. Carrie needed care more than ever. He had been taken advantage of, his innocence stolen from him, but his trauma was ignored. No one was there to catch Casey when he fell into the abyss that would eventually swallow him whole. Two weeks after the kidnapping, Kenneth Parnell took his victim, Stevie, and moved to Santa Rosa, California, where he took a job as a motel auditor. This appears to be where the majority of the abuse took place. The time Steven spent with Parnell was difficult. Kenneth always wanted to have a family, but the home was not the warm, loving environment that Steven was used to. To brainwash Steven, Parnell would allow him to do whatever he pleased, extraordinary freedom is how one psychologist explained it. He began to smoke cigarettes, and then eventually he began to drink. He had freedom to go play with his friends and run around town. The only freedom he didn't have, but ached for, was the ability to go home, to be with his family. During this time, Parnell would take various jobs, some that would cause him to travel. Even then, Stephen never tried to escape. He indicated to investigators that he was still young and didn't fully grasp the situation. I strongly believe Stephen may not have been in a physical prison, but he was in a mental prison. Even though he had the opportunity to leave, he couldn't break of his invisible bonds. The light of freedom Stephen would experience during the day was contrasted by the darkness that followed at night. Parnell sexually abused Stephen almost nightly. For the first two years, Stephen and Kenneth lived alone, but when Stephen was nine, Parnell started dating Barbara Mathias. Unfortunately, the introduction of a woman was not a source of comfort for Stephen. Barbara told police she never saw any indication that Stevie was being abused. However, at a later time, Stephen indicated that Kenneth and Barbara sexually abused Stephen together nine times. And to follow that, Barbara attempted to kidnap another boy with Parnell. In 1975, on Parnell's instruction, Matthias tried to lure another young boy, who was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with Stainer, into Parnell's car. The boy refused, and the attempt was unsuccessful. Parnell's relationship with Barbara only lasted roughly 18 months, but it appears they remained friends. Even though Stephen exposed Barbara for sexually abusing him nine times on nine different occasions, Barbara was never charged with a crime. She never served any time for her part with keeping Stephen away from his family. I know the laws were different in the 70s and 80s, I won't pretend to know what they were like at the time, but it just seems like a terrible injustice. But that isn't the worst of it. We'll get to that later. As Stephen grew older, Parnell started to look for a new child. Twice he took Stephen with him to scout for a new boy to abduct. By this point, Stephen was old enough to understand what was happening, and he clearly had a sense of right and wrong. At the age of 14, things started to change between Stephen and Parnell. Parnell was a pedophile, and Stephen was developing into a young man. Not only was he changing physically due to puberty, He was also becoming more independent and undoubtedly entering the rebellious teen years. Because of all the changes, Parnell once again craved a new, younger son. On February 14, 1980, Stephen returned home to find a five-year-old boy named Timothy White was Kenneth Parnell's new son. Parnell had used one of Stephen's friends, Randall Sean Poorman, to lure and kidnap the young boy. Timothy cried day and night for his parents. Stephen finally saw the light. Enough was enough. He needed a plan. I couldn't watch Timothy suffer the way I did, he later explained. His mental bonds were now broken. He didn't want another child to be treated the way he had been. Sixteen days later, he saw his chance to carry out his plan when Parnell went to work, so he grabbed Timothy and ran out the door. The two walked and hitchhiked for miles, often with Stephen carrying Timothy on his back. They finally arrived at the town of Ukiah, California, Stephen explained that both boys had been kidnapped. They knew Timothy White's name, but Stephen could not remember his own. He had been called Dennis Parnell so long that he could only tell police, I know my name is Stephen. It took police several hours, but they finally found the missing person's report about Stephen. The following morning, Parnell was arrested. After the arrest, they also found out about his 1951 child molestation conviction as well. But Stephen initially insisted neither he or Timothy were sexually abused. I'm sure this was simply due to embarrassment and humiliation. In 1980, the stigma attached to Stephen's abuse was just too heavy a burden for the 14-year-old to speak of. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com Obscura today. To get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery. One that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's Journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation Says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, She found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine. And they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com/obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B A D L A N D S F O O D.com/obscura. Stephen's return home was both a joyous and difficult experience. His family was overjoyed to have him home. After seven years, they had had very little hope of ever seeing their boy again. Delbert and Kay welcomed him with open arms, but as Kay once said, We got Steve back, not Stevie. The young innocent boy who they lost was now a smoking, drinking, foul-mouthed, rebellious teenager. The extreme freedom that Stephen once had was now replaced with rules and curfews. He once again had his parents to answer to, and it was a very difficult adjustment. In an interview, shortly after he was reunited with his family, Stainer said, I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home. Would I have been better off if I didn't? In a 2007 interview, Stainer's sister, Corey said that her brother did not seek counseling because their father said Stainer didn't need any. She added, He got on with his life, but he was pretty messed up. He was teased by other children at school for being molested and eventually dropped out.
3: Stephen, to to police and and your parents, uh, obviously you just disappeared off the face of the map. What happened that afternoon? Do you remember when you were walking home from school?
0: Uh, Yes, um, I was walking home from school and... I was stopped by a man along the street just a few blocks from my house and he uh, asked me if I wanted to, me or my my mother wanted to donate something to a church and I had told him that uh, my mother would probably want to and so he offered me uh, a ride home. I had um, refused the first time telling him that uh, my house is just a few blocks away, and he had asked me several more times and After a while, I had taken a ride and then uh a car pulled up, and I got in and they they passed the road that i was that I lived on and I had told them that that was the road I lived on. They said that we'll just uh, call your parents see if you can stay the night. Were you afraid? Uh, not that much, I was a little bit. What
3: What did they tell you as the days went on? Why, why they were keeping you with them and what did they tell you about your
0: family? Well, the family, First night, they had said they called my parents and said it was all right that I stayed the night. The second night, they said that they had called them again and said they, that I could stay another night. Then um, one of them went to uh, went out and came back and said that he went to court and he got in possession of me and said that I was his. How did you feel about that when you heard that? Um, i really forgotten what I felt that at that time. It was kind of a shock to me.
3: You called him, I've been told that you called him dad. How long before you started calling him dad? Do you have any idea when that started? Um, That started about
0: a week after my
3: abduction. What were your thoughts during the seven years about your parents? Did you think about them? And if so, what what went through your mind?
0: Um, Through the seven years, I don't remember what went through my mind, but I thought of my parents very often Mr. Stainer, did you have any doubts during those seven
3: years that you'd see your Stephen again? Well, I had a lot
0: of hope up to two years ago. Uh, there was a few things that came up that I kind of I kind of lost my hope and faith in it. And, but uh, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Fortunately. Mrs. Stainer, did you share his, his hope for that period and then lose it at any point? Or what happened with your no, mind?
0: I'm- I never did lose my hope that I would find Steve. I didn't get into all the things that uh, Dell did. I was uh, oblivious to all that kind of stuff. I just went merrily on my way believing that Stephen would be home one day.
2: Stainer began to drink frequently. And he got in possession of me. His relationship with his father remained strained.
0: And said that I was his.
2: While Delbert and Kay were trying to figure out how to deal with their son, they started overcompensating for his long disappearance. The kids all noticed that the discipline was no longer fair. While Carrie and his sisters would get in trouble for being rebellious, Stephen was allowed to act out. Neighbors also observed when Stephen returned home, the whole family's focus was on him. Everything they did and everything they had, it was about Stephen, one neighbor confessed. This became a source of jealousy and irritation for the other Stainer children. It seemed to especially irritate his brother, Carrie. Being the only boy when Stephen was gone, Carrie had a room all to himself. Now that Stephen was back, he had to share a room again, and his roommate wasn't the most enjoyable person for Cary to spend time with. He was older, and for the young Carrie, basically a stranger. Now that he was back, Cary quickly grew increasingly frustrated with this stranger's His brother's attitude. A bitterness grew in Carrie. With bitterness came resentment. All of a sudden Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. While Stephen spent time trying to adjust to life at his real home, the trial for kidnapping Timothy White began. The trial for kidnapping Stephen would come later in the year. It is unclear why they held the trials separately. There were no charges for the sexual abuse. I've also learned the defense tried to have the case thrown out against Stephen since the statute of limitations was only three years for kidnapping. Thankfully, the prosecution was able to argue against that argument, and Parnell was still charged with the kidnapping. A conspiracy charge was also thrown out by the judge. The court-appointed psychologist explained that Stephen had been held in a mental prison, and Stephen had recently told him he hated Parnell and could kill him for forcing him to performing various sex acts. It was also explained that the experiences have left Stainer uncomfortable about his feelings and emotions. Parnell was convicted of kidnapping Timothy White, and later he was convicted of kidnapping Stephen Stainer. Seven years in prison, Kenneth Parnell was sentenced to the same amount of time Stephen was held captive, infuriating. Tension continued to build up in the Stainer home, and Stephen and Darnell continued to clash. It finally escalated to such a degree that, in a mind-blowing ironic twist, Darnell kicked Stephen out of the house. He had obsessed so much about getting Stephen back that it cost him relationships with his other children, and then he finally sends him back out on the streets. In 1985, Stephen married Jody Edmondson, and eventually they had two children. Stephen credited Jody with helping him to deal with a lot of the hurt and anger he had over his ordeal. She would listen to him and comfort him in ways that no one had done before. He was finally getting back on his feet and starting to heal, although he still blamed himself for the abduction. However, while struggling to find light in the shadow that had enveloped his childhood, he tried to help others as well. He worked with child abduction groups, spoke to children about stranger danger, and granted interviews about his kidnapping. One of those interviews led to a manuscript that we will discuss a little later. Later that same year, in 1985, Parnell was released from prison. Having served only five years of his seven year sentence, one can imagine Stephen had an emotional setback while he tried to deal with the fact that his abductor and abuser was back out on the streets, able to once again hurt small children. As if that wasn't enough bad news, Stephen learned that Darnell and Kay separated, and Darnell moved out of the house. The following year, Darnell was accused of molesting Stephen and Carrie's sisters. Surprisingly, even after all the accusations, Kay took Darnell back in 1987. Kenneth Parnell completed his probation in 1988, and at that time child abusers could go free and did not have to register. So even though he no longer worried what Parnell could do to him, Stephen now feared for his children. He started to make sure his own two children were never out of his sight. Stainer worked with child abduction groups, spoke to children about stranger danger, and granted interviews about his kidnapping. One of those interviews was with Mike Eccles, an author who wrote multiple books about abductions. Those interviews were put in a manuscript, and in May 1989, that manuscript was made into a TV miniseries called "I Know My First Name Is Stephen."
0: Hey, where are you going? Home. Yeah, take one of these.
2: I'm from a, a church,
0: and I'm looking, um, I'm looking for donations. You think maybe your mama would wanna? contribute a little something? I don't know. Where do you live? Down that way, about three blocks. You, th- you think maybe we could talk to your mama? I guess so. You show us where your house is? Hop in, son. The preacher here, you have drive you home. You're passing my street. It's that way. I know. But isn't it a beautiful day for a drive? I have to go straight home. Don't worry about it. I have to. Why? Are you afraid you're gonna get in trouble? Yeah. What are you afraid of? You afraid your father's gonna hit you? Yes. Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore, son. Your father's never gonna hit you again.
2: I promise you that. Steven was given a cameo in the film as a police officer, a profession that Stephen was pursuing. In his heart, he still wanted to help others even though he was struggling with his own demons. Here is Steven in his own works talking about his struggles.
0: Any chance I get to talk about it, I think really helps me deal with the problem. The more I talk about it, uh, the the better i can deal with it
3: his mother kay says she hopes by telling their story other parents may be able to learn from their mistakes because we didn't really talk that much with our kids about um dealing with awkward situations or bad situations uh we told them don't talk to strangers we never told them what a stranger was as for steve he's just hopeful that by focusing attention on his experience The misfortune he suffered will somehow be able to make a positive difference for others.
0: We're hoping it will reach the people out there and inform them that stranger abduction, child abduction of any kind, is a serious problem. Maybe some kid out there that's missing will will see it and and come forward and uh, make an attempt to go home.
2: Unfortunately, just a few months later, on a rainy day, Stephen decided to ride his motorcycle home from the local pizza hut. Where he worked delivering pizza his co-workers tried to discourage him from taking the motorcycle since the weather was bad and his motorcycle helmet had been stolen the day before Stephen insisted and took off down the road a vehicle pulled out in front of Stephen and he crashed into the driver's side door which resulted in massive head injuries steven stainer died later that day on september 16, 1989. he was only 24 years old His funeral was held at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Merced. Five hundred people attended, including Timmy White, the boy who was saved by Stephen's heroic actions. Fourteen now, Timmy served as one of Stainer's pallbearers. Ten years earlier, Stephen had carried Timmy through the door of that godforsaken den of misery. It was now Timmy's turn to carry Stephen. The news devastated the Stainer family. Kay, who had always been so strong, wouldn't speak to anyone. Del did his best to keep her strong, just like she tried to keep him strong when Stephen was first abducted. While he was obsessive and frantic when Stephen was first abducted, it's final this time, said his father. I know where Stevie's at now. Needless to say, the events that surrounded Stephen's life had a huge impact on his family. It seems to have really bothered his quiet and introverted brother, Carrie. On the outside, he was quiet, withdrawn, and doing his best to cope. But on the inside, he was a steaming kettle of anger, and he was getting ready to explode. He first lost the attention of his family when Stephen went missing. When Stephen returned, he had to deal with a rebellious teen brother who felt more like an intruder than a member of the family. He also had to deal with all of the attention Stephen was receiving, not only by his family, but by the media and the rest of the world. While his sister insisted Carrie was not affected, the events that would transpire contradict that statement. Merced, California, 1974. 13 year old Carrie Stainer sits in his class for the gifted. He has been told that he is very smart, that if he stays on track, the sky is the limit. But Carrie is bored. He's trying to focus on his work, but his attention drifts to his pencil. The class around him starts to evaporate, and slowly the pencil does as well. His thoughts first go to early December of 1972, when his brother went missing. The image that comes to mind is of his father sitting in his chair and crying. Before that, his dad always seemed so strong, unshakable. Seeing his father cry like that changed something in Carrie. The image dissolves. Specks of the memory fading to black before creating a new, unfocused memory. It's him, Carrie, and his friends. Stark naked. They're streaking in front of several of the neighborhood girls. For Carrie's friends, it's just a gag that they got carried away with. For Carrie, however, it feels like something more. On to another memory. His uncle. Showing him pictures of underage girls in a magazine. The image from the magazine that always comes to mind is that of a naked ten-year-old girl. The pictures in question were used to groom Kerry for his sexual assault. From this memory, another one flashes into focus. An image that feels as real as an actual memory. Kerry imagines women, perhaps from his neighborhood, being marched naked in front of him. It's obvious the women are unsure of their destination. Then, the trap has sprung. Men come seemingly from nowhere. They circle the women and then hold the naked women down. The men are raping the women. There, one of Carrie's school teachers. There, a woman Carrie saw at the grocery store. There, Carrie's mother. Carrie is deeply excited about this fantasy. He requests a bathroom pass and is granted one. 1977 Carrie is again excited. He is now 16. His sister's friend, Flores Tatum, is straying the night. Throughout the day, Carrie has done the best to conceal his fascination for Tatum's breasts. He steals glances at her chest whenever he feels she wouldn't notice. It takes almost more self-control than Carrie is capable of to not just outright grope Tatum. That night, after much pacing around his room, Carrie finally gives in to his desires. It's late at night and everyone in the house has long been asleep. Slowly, Carrie steps lightly into his sister's room. The girls were sharing a bed. Again, slowly, Carrie crawled under his sister's bed. With one arm, Carrie reached up and finally did the unconceivable. He began touching Tatum's breast through her nightgown. Suddenly, the girl wakes, sits up straight. She stares about the room, eyes adjusting to the dark. But no one is there. So, Flores Tatum rolled over on her side. After a time, just before she fell asleep, she heard the creak of the bedroom door moving. Tatum, wondering what the sound came from, rolled over to take a look. Standing in the doorway is Carrie Stainer, completely naked and staring at her. 1979, now 18, Carrie continued to do well in school. Eventually, through a class vote, Carrie wins most creative student. He is known as a capable cartoonist. It wasn't uncommon for fellow students to ask for caricatures. His future seemed bright, the road ahead of him not quite shrouded by the darkness that would follow. Carrie graduates from high school. For the next several years that follow, we reach a familiar landscape. Steven Stainer escapes from his captor, and Carrie becomes deeply jealous of his brother. The publicity from television and the extra care initially given from their parents is nearly too much for Carrie to stand. This is made worse by having to share his one private room. Sometimes, when frustrated enough, Carrie would pull his hair out enough that it left bald spots on his head. When Carrie turns 24, the TV movie for Stephen is filmed. Carrie took time to speak with writer J.P. Miller, who penned the TV movie, I Know My Name Is Stephen, and showed Miller some of his cartoon drawings. Miller found himself genuinely impressed. He told Carey that he should show the drawings to some art school. Carey declined to do so. He felt unconfident that they would be interested, and didn't want to be rejected. 1982. It's summer. Carey is on a visit to Yosemite. Carey has been visiting this location his entire life. There is a deep-rooted feeling of nostalgia he associates with Yosemite. High up on the canyons, Staring past the road that leads to Foresta, he spots two buildings of interest. They press right up against Big Meadow. The buildings of interest are a barn and a greenhouse. Hands cupped around his eyes to shield against the sunlight, Carrie decides to hike to the barn. What he finds there, whether he is to be believed or not, is Bigfoot. Yes, you heard it right. Carrie would go on to claim that he saw a Bigfoot in the barn that day. It's up to you to decide if you believe it was just in his head, Or that he really did see the creature of legends. But to Carrie, what he saw was real. 1989. Carrie is 28. What Carrie once found easy to hide is becoming visible to others. What's inside him becomes harder to contain with each passing day. One day, Carrie began having a panic attack. For those unaware what a full-blown panic attack feels like, imagine the absolute fear that you felt when terrified as a child. Maybe from a particularly scary horror movie. Maybe from real-life trauma. Do you remember that feeling of your heart pounding? Feeling like you couldn't breathe? That's a panic attack. Pure, uncut fear distilled and unable to contain. On this day in 1989, Carrie told a friend named Marchus that he felt like he was having a nervous breakdown. His friend did their best to calm him down. Carrie kept repeating the same thing that he felt like getting into his truck, driving into the office of the glass company he worked at, killing his boss and everybody in there, and then torching the place. Not long after Carrie's panic attack, Stephen dies from his motorcycle accident. In 1990, Carrie lived with his uncle Jesse Jerry Stainer. Little is known about the time spent living with his uncle. I'll leave the listener to speculate on this, but Carrie's uncle was found murdered by gunfire. The weapon used was Jesse Stainer's own shotgun. The killer never found. In light of later revelations related to Carrie, the case has been reopened. Carrie claimed he was once molested by this man. Shortly after his uncle's murder, Carrie attempts suicide with carbon monoxide. In 1995, at the age of 34, Carrie is admitted to the Merced County Mental Health Department. The staff were told that Carrie had been under a lot of stress and was going through a nervous breakdown. After treatment, Carrie is released. Unfortunately for Carrie's victims, the treatment didn't stick. February 1999. Carol planned the trip for over two months. In preparation for the trip, which would be without her husband Jens, A family friend gifted Carol Pepper spray. So, on a day in early to mid-February, Carol, her daughter Julie, age 15, and Julie's friend, an exchange student Sylvina Peloso, age 16, got into the family car and drove to the airport. The plane destination? San Francisco. The vacation spot? Yosemite National Park. When the group arrived at the Cedar Lodge, they rented some videotapes. There would be downtime. Carrie Stainer arrived at the Cedar Lodge disappointed. Things hadn't gone to plan with his girlfriend. He got out of his car and walked toward the hot tub area. He needed to soak. Hopefully that would get his mind off things. To his continued despair, he found the hot tub was filthy. The water was green. It was filled with debris and its sides stained. As Carrie began to clean the hot tub, his thoughts wandered. He met his now-girlfriend three, going on four months ago. There wasn't anything special about her to Carrie, It was her two preteen daughters that interested him. He fantasized about the two girls daily. His plans, were he ever able to act them out, were to kill their mother, and then spend days acting out his fantasies. Carrie planned to force the girls to perform sexual acts on each other, and then perform sexual acts on them. If he could get it up, that is. Carrie only could penetrate his girlfriend on two occasions. When he had his fill, Carrie would murder the two girls as well. The day before would have been perfect. It was Valentine's Day, but Carrie felt he blew it. He always got too nervous. Carrie thought to himself that the girls and their mother would never know just how lucky they were. At least for now. When he felt the hot tub looked clean enough, Carrie got off his knees. He really needed to soak. But before he could get in the water, he heard a noise that caught his interest. Carrie found the source of the sound coming from room 509 in the motel. He crept around the building and peeked through a partially open curtain. Sharing a bed and watching a movie were Julie and Sylvina. The electric glow of the television blanketed them. Carol son lay in the other bed. She held an open book, seemingly oblivious to the movie. Carrie's heart started to pound. There were no men around. The rooms next to 509 were empty. Carrie spent close to a year waiting for a moment like this to happen. Each time his plans were foiled... Some unforeseen circumstance that put a stop to his desires. Not this time. Carey thought to himself, Easy prey. He played with the master key in his pocket. He'd borrowed it to clean the hot tub moments ago. Carey needed to do this right. It would be impossible to cover his tracks if he slipped up. He made a show of heading back to the office, loudly opening the drawer for the key and pretending to drop it in, nodding at a motel employee on his way out. Now... He needed his rape and kill kit. Carrie prepared the kit in a trance. He knew inside what it was for. But no one wants to think of themselves as the bad guy, the monster. Back in his room, Carrie double-checked the supplies. Duct tape, check. Rope, check. Gun, check. Carrie stopped and checked his knife, giving the sharp blade extra attention. It was his favorite item. It was a large, serrated butcher knife. Carol sat reading in her room. She was struggling to read the words on the page. Reading on vacation always seemed like a great idea, but as an adult, sometimes your nerves are wound tight. Relaxing doesn't always come easily. The girls were very excited to arrive in Yosemite, in a way that only those with their entire future in front of them could be. No crushing weight of bills, no abandoned dreams, a knock came at the motel door. The girls looked to Carol to answer the door. It seemed that the unsureness of a new place was enough to reinstate Carol as the protector. Still, Carol gave pause. Who is it? She asked at the door. Hotel maintenance? The man at the other side answered. There was pause. Then the man continued. There's a leak in your wing of the 500 building. I need to find the source. Julie and Silvina were now looking through a crack of the curtain. Their movie abandoned. "'Can't you come later tomorrow?' Carol asked. "'Ma'am, it's a leak. These things can get serious. If we let it run all night, who knows what kind of damage there will be in the morning?' Another pause. "'It can't be that bad,' Carol answered back. "'It's late, and we're just trying to relax.' The maintenance man returned. "'I just need to find the source, and I'll be out of your hair. If that water seeps into the sheetrock, we'll have to move you into another room altogether. We both don't want that.' Another pause. This one seemed like ages. The girls were not looking out the window now. Just at Carol. They had nothing to offer in the situation. Carol didn't know if it was just her maternal instincts making her paranoid. Something in her stomach read the situation as wrong. Maybe if she could just... Okay, I don't need this. The man sounded totally impatient now. I'm going to go get my manager and we'll move you to another building. Carol felt a pang of panic. Wait! She called out to the man's back. Carrie Stainer turned around and saw Carol standing there, the door wide open. Easy prey, he thought to himself again. When the man entered, he seemed friendly enough. Carol and the girls relaxed. They sat on the edge of the motel beds as Carrie went into the bathroom to check for the leak. Carol leaned forward and saw the maintenance man standing on the toilet removing the fan. How's the movie? Carol asked the girls. Their answer a nervous smile. The smile shifted to a look of pure horror. The man now held a gun, the room spinning, Carol's vision dotted with specks of light and blackness, as her reality seemed to shatter. I'm a desperate man, I just need your money and car keys. The man, in his horrifying six-foot-two and sturdy presence, said in a voice that seemed to echo in Carol's ears. Carol broke from her anguished terror. She went for her purse. If she could get this man to leave, he could have anything that he wanted. Carrie made Carol lay on the bed. He then bound and gagged her with duct tape. Next, he bound the girls the same way. After the binding, he carried the girls to the motel bathtub where he told them to wait. Carrie came back to Carol and made her bonds tighter, this time with rope. This was so there wouldn't be a struggle. Carrie straddled Carol's back and, with what was left of the rope, separated Carol from her children for eternity. As Carol struggled against the rope wrapped tightly against her neck, Carrie found himself shocked that he didn't feel a thing. He felt similar to how he felt doing any menial task. This felt like doing the laundry, or sweeping the floor. Meanwhile, Carol ceased struggling. Carrie's arms felt tired. His arms are what bothered him the most. And that wasn't much. Carrie is strong, athletic. He brought Carol's body out to her rental car, carefully placing her body in the trunk. Then, he took the time to pack her tightly, like adjusting luggage so it doesn't shake around when you drive. Plus, Carrie needed the room for two bodies later. He went back inside and removed the girl's leg bindings. As he cut their clothes off with his knife, he explained to them that Carol was tied up in another room. Carrie removed Sylvina's bottoms and felt a rush of disgust. He could retch. He saw that the girl is on her period. Still, he wanted to act out his fantasies so he tried to make the girls perform sex acts on each other. No matter how threatening his commands, they continued to refuse. Sylvina at this point sobbing. Carrie found this increasingly annoying. Finally, he had enough. Carrie grabbed the rope, wrapped it around the the crying girl's throat, and dragged Sylvina to the bathroom. He watched as the girl's eyes begged him to stop, her hands clawing at his, and then, eventually, the light was gone. The girl's body went limp. Carrie felt disappointment, like he'd lost a valued plaything. On his way out of the bathroom, Carrie heard Sylvina wheezing. It seemed her body was making reflexive gasping sounds, even in her death. Carrie couldn't believe it. He thought to himself that even in her death, the girl was a nuisance. Sure enough, the light was back in her eyes. Carrie went back out to the bed and grabbed his roll of duct tape. Then, as tightly as possible, Carrie wrapped the duct tape around Sylvina's face and head, covering her nose and mouth, covering every inch. She rolled and clawed. This time she quieted down for good. With Sylvina incapacitated, he brought her out to the trunk. There he tightly packed her into the trunk next to Carol. To Carrie, she was just another piece of luggage. Back in the room, Carrie stood Julie up. He removed her gag. Julie asked Carrie if he would let her live. Carrie couldn't look her in the eyes. He didn't answer her. Carrie brought Julie into the next motel room. There, he made her go into the bathroom. He gave Julie a razor and made her shave her pubic hair. You see, Carrie felt the 15-year-old Julie still looked a bit too old for his taste. He wanted her to look younger. For the next few hours, Carrie sexually abused Julie. Over. And over. When he finished, he tied her up again and disconnected the motel phone. Next door, he did his best to clean the room of evidence. He wiped off any surface he remembered touching with his hands. He grabbed everything the girls had packed and placed it in the rental car. He then wet some towels and threw them about the bathroom. He wanted the room to look lived in, but he also wanted the room to look like the girls had disappeared off the face of the earth. Before he left the room, Stainer stopped for a moment. He hit eject on the VCR. He wanted to know what the girls were watching. Jerry Maguire huh. Back in the other room, Carrie lifted Julie and carried her to the car. He untied some of her bindings after she complained, but left some binding around her ankles. At around 5 a.m. they pulled out of the parking lot. On the road, he began asking Julie questions. He asked her name and she responded, Sarah. They pulled into a parking lot at Vista Point, which is near Don Pedro Lake. Carrie grabbed Julie from the car and carried her over his shoulder down a nearby trail, When they traveled a certain distance, Carrie laid Julie out on a blanket. There, he sexually assaulted her for one last time. After he finished, he sat at the edge of the blanket with a melancholic look. When I came out of the bathroom with the gun that was your chance to escape, he told her, it wasn't loaded. The night crept from the sky. It was getting light now. It was bright enough to see Julie crying. I love you, Carrie told the girl, and then he slit her throat. Dying, Julie rolled down the hill. Carrie followed where her body stopped rolling and spread her legs open. A final pose. One last humiliation. He then removed the duct tape and hid it nearby in a log. Carrie climbed back up the hill. He watched the sun rise over the lake with a sense of wonder. Carrie couldn't believe it. He felt so lucky. He felt love for the first time. Just before he killed the girl, he felt it swelling in his chest. Carol Sund was born on April 25, 1956 in California. She, her child, and their family friend died on February 15, 1999. Carol was 42. She was survived by her husband, Jens Sunds, and three children. The Carol Sund Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation was established in the year 2000 in her honor. It offered rewards for information that helps law enforcement officials locate missing persons and bring violent criminals to justice. The foundation also existed to bring awareness to the problem the U.S. faces with missing persons. Sadly, the foundation dissolved in 2009. Juliana Julie's son was born on September 21, 1983, in Eureka, California. Julie enjoyed snowboarding and cheerleading. Her favorite movies were Titanic and Bugs Life. After Julie's death, her father kept her room as a sort of shrine. He left the items as they were, untouched. Two high school yearbooks were left open on her bed, as well as an issue of Cheerleader magazine. Julie and her mother share a gravestone. I usually like to read what the gravestone has written on it, but the only thing that is legible is, maybe washed away. The rest of the text is sun-faded. Silvina Peloso was born in 1983 in Argentina. She was buried in Cordoba, Argentina. Savina had left Argentina to spend a year in America as an exchange student. What should have been a fond life experience was stolen from her. A memorial service was held for the girls at Sacred Heart Crutch in Eureka, California. Over 1,000 people attended. Back to the standard timeline, two days after the murders, on February 18th, Carey goes back to the Soons rental vehicle and burns it. He also retrieves Carol's wallet. The car is found a month later on March 18th. Carol and Sylvina's bodies are found burned in the trunk. Carey sends a letter to the FBI to inform them where Julie's body is. The letter included a hand-drawn map. Detectives interview Cedar Lodge Motel employees about Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, Eventually, they speak with Carey. Carey isn't considered a suspect. He seems calm and has no criminal history. Just that nasty business with his brother all those years ago. In the interview, the FBI agent, Jeff Rinnick, asks Carey if he has seen the movie Billy Jack. Jeff tells Carey that he looks like the film's main character. Carey denies seeing it. An hour and a half later, on a drive to FBI headquarters, Carey began reciting line-for-line quotes from Billy Jack. July 21st, 1999 Carrie Stainer remembers that the barn he saw Bigfoot in all those years ago, back in 1982, has recently been rebuilt. It has been on his mind to revisit the barn. Kerry has spent a large portion of the day naked, sunbathing in the nude. It dawns on him after to visit the barn. Carrie drives his truck a leisurely pace, taking Forest Road. The surroundings, beautiful as always. It being July, it's a hot day, but not unpleasant. At the end of the road, there's a washed-out bridge. Carrie stops the truck, gets out, picks up a few stones and tosses them one by one into the creek that passes under the bridge. It looks like the bridge hasn't been used for some time, in fact, and then he spots her, a woman walking with a duffel bag. When she gets to her truck, she loads the bag and then heads back to her place, which happens to be just out of sight. Is she alone? Stainer asks himself. His heart is racing. Carefully, creeps closer to where the woman was, then to the side of the barn. The woman had strawberry blonde hair up in pigtails and looked physically fit. Joey Armstrong heads back to her truck with another bag. She'd been looking forward to this trip for the past few days. Her friends in Sausalito would be waiting for her, so she did her best to pack quickly. Then it came to her. She almost forgot. The plants needed to be watered. When Joey came out of her house with the watering can, a man stood outside. For a moment her heart jumped, but then she calmed down. In Yosemite, hikers are common. You got used to them. And the man seemed friendly enough. After greeting each other, the two engage in small talk. Joey asks if this is Carrie's first time in Yosemite. It wasn't. The man responds... "'You know, I've been through here many times in the past. "'I've seen this house since... well, since I was a kid. "'I didn't know if anyone lived here. "'You've done a great job fixing it up.' "'Joey expressed gratitude for the compliment. "'She didn't notice that as Carrie spoke, "'he was making his way slowly up to the where she stood, "'step by step. "'The movements are slow, gradual, "'but with each moment the distance between them grows shorter. "'Carrie knows he has to get this right. "'Hey, I just had a thought,' he says casually. You might think I'm crazy, but years ago, I saw a Bigfoot in that barn. The man is now pointing at Joey's barn. You've lived here. Have you heard or seen anything? He continues. Joey expressed that she hadn't. In a half-joking but friendly tone, she tells Carrie that maybe her roommates had and never told her. Roommates? Carrie responds. His brow creased. Again, I know this sounds crazy, but are any of these roommates around? I wouldn't mind asking them if they ever saw anything, you know? no joey responds politely there isn't anyone else here but me carrie's leg muscles run stiff in response and me carrie says nearly under his breath joey sensing something wrong turns around she wants to run but before she can carrie pulls the gun from his waistband i'm not going to hurt you he tells the now distressed woman as carrie edges closer to her joey finds herself frozen in place the gun pointing at her has a psychic heft to it Even at a distance. Like wherever the barrel points, she can feel physical pressure. When the man pulls out a roll of duct tape, she snaps out of it, punching, kicking, and scratching this terrifying man. This brute. He proves to be strong, too strong. The man overwhelmed her. Joey manages to break through Carrie's bindings twice. It proves to be no use, however. He just binds her again with the tape. Carrie grabs Joey forcefully by the arm and drags her to his truck on the other side of the washed-out bridge. The woman kicks and cries out through her gag the whole way. The gag seems to do little to quiet her. Carrie hates her for the noise she's making. On the way, they pass by Joey's truck. Carrie notices the keys sticking out of the back of the trunk. He grabs them and slams the trunk shut. Can't be too safe. When they get to the truck, Carrie forces her into the back. He throws a sleeping bag on top of her. On the road, Joey keeps fighting. Carrie yells threats at her. He feels exhausted, dizzy. But it doesn't make the woman stop. Carrie pulls a knife. Joey takes this as her chance. Despite being bound strictly with tape, she manages to dive out of the passenger window. Carrie slams the truck to a halt. When he gets out, Carrie scans the area. He sees Joey, free of her bonds, running towards other homes. Carrie makes a sprint for it. The woman tired. She's fought a great deal. Carrie digs deep and gains speed. Closer. Closer. Just out of reach. He tackles her. He rolls her over. Joey strikes out at him. Carrie gains wrist control with one hand, and with the other, he slits Joey's throat. In shock, Joey grabs at her neck and Carrie stands up. He knows he needed to finish her off. She'd gotten too close, She'd almost escaped. Carrie grabs Joey by her hair and drags her, while she tries desperately to breathe, to a secluded area. Now, without fear of being caught, Carrie, in his own words, finishes her off. While Joey fights off the knife, leaving defense wounds on her fingers, Carrie saws her head off. After removing her head, Carrie removes Joey's bindings. He hides her remains in some nearby water. Before placing her head in the water, Carrie washes the blood off her face and out of her hair. Carrie could cry. She's peaceful. Nothing hurts now. It's all over for her. No more pain. No more worry. Carrie feels a pang of envy. To him, the woman's severed head being lowered into water is baptism. And in this perverse baptism, Carrie feels so much love for the woman. Before moving on, Carrie stares at his victim's face one last time. It seems unreal to him. He knows that he caused this. The evidence confronts him, but can't place himself as the culprit. His connection to the events that transpired just moments earlier seemed to dissolve with each passing moment. Internally, Carrie excuses himself from his actions. As soon as he saw the woman, he knew what was going to happen. His rape and kill kit he kept in the car is enough to convince him of that. Still, looking at his handiwork, it doesn't feel real. Carrie can't bring himself to hunt or fish. The act of gutting them disgusts him, as well as roadkill. The stench drove him nuts. Yet murdering the woman came with ease. It was natural. His calling. Carrie decides then and there that the woman was simply in the wrong place, at the wrong time. What happened was a matter of cause and effect. It was out of his hands. Why should he carry guilt for something that came as instinct? The only thing that bothered Carrie now was that he couldn't keep her head. To a degree, he loved this woman, and he felt her severed head would make for a great trophy. Again gently, Carrie lowers the woman's head in the water at first, face up. This gives him pleasure. But then he thinks better of it and turns the head around. Joey Ruth Armstrong was born in 1972 in California. Joey's friends knew her to be enthusiastic and almost always friendly. She was a Nature Bridge educator at Yosemite National Park. She had a passion for teaching and enjoyed connecting with kids. To quote Joey herself, my passion lies with teaching children about their environment, and I have dedicated all of my efforts toward it. A scholarship program was created in her memory. Its description reads that it is to inspire young women to reach their highest potential, develop a stronger sense of self and community, and explore their personal connection to nature. Participants venture into the backcountry of Yosemite National Park with highly-skilled female educators from Nature Bridge for an expedition of discovery, leadership, and personal challenge. Joey's life was cut short by a despicable monster. Her only crime was being a caring and outgoing person who was friendly to strangers. Joey Armstrong was buried in Pleasant Hills Cemetery in Sebastopol, California. Her gravestone reads, Into God's Hands and was sponsored by Geraldine Humes. After Joey's murder, Kerry Stainer was quickly apprehended at a nudist resort he was visiting. Kerry's blue 1979 International Scout was seen by an eyewitness and easily traced back to Kerry. In an excellent book written by the aforementioned FBI agent Jeff Rinnick, great detail is given to the interrogation. As a trade for his confession, Kerry wanted a stack of child abuse images from the FBI. This included pictures and videos. Kerry's trial didn't go well for him. His lawyer cited Carey's history of sexual abuse and mental illness. A doctor, Jose Arturo, testified that Carey Stainer had a mild form of autism, OCD, and paraphilia. Carey was found sane enough to stand trial, and on August 27, 2002, he was found guilty and convicted of four counts of first-degree murder. His punishment, death. Carey awaits the gas chamber in San Quentin Penitentiary, though it should be noted that San Quentin hasn't executed a death row inmate since 2006. And that closes the story of Steven and Carrie Stainer, both victims of child sexual abuse, both taking different paths, casting a lingering shadow over Yosemite. We were sitting there swimming, he walked in to do his job around the pool, do some handyman work, and he, Aaron hollered at him, told him to come over and meet us, and every day after that, pretty much that we were over there, we'd see him and talk to him for about five minutes. I've never even seen the man violent at all. He's never even really raised his voice, even when we're just sitting there talking. He always made us feel pretty much like we had nothing to worry about. Never made us feel uncomfortable. Pretty disappointing, because this was my, you know, my little paradise away from
3: the city.